Man, you can have a seat. And listen, God is making a way. He is on the move, whether it be Port Clinton, Sandusky, Norwalk. God is on the move. We get to come together all under the same banner, which is Jesus Christ, right? And that's why we're here today. It's so good to be with you. My name is Ryan. I'm the Port Clinton campus pastor, so that's why I'm usually never here. I'm the equivalent of Charles over there, but Charles is way better, okay? So I'll, I'll give you that. And so he brags on Norwalk a lot, and I can see why. And so it's truly an honor to be with you. We're going to be continuing our message series in Revelation. We're all the way to Revelation chapter 11. And so if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 11. If you don't have one, that's fine. We're going to have it up on the screens for you today. But that's where we're going to be the entire time basically. All right? So as you're turning there, I just want to let you know, uh, maybe you know of a man by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. If you don't, that's okay. Uh, In 1939, he's a German theologian. Dietrich Bonhoeffer stepped onto the shore of New York City to safely sit out World War II. He's from Germany, sailed to New York to kind of sit out. But once he got in New York, he realized that if he wanted to rebuild the church in Germany, he could not abandon it at its darkest hour. So about a month later, he sailed back to Germany to continue to be a witness and advance the kingdom of Jesus Christ in the midst of the warfare that was going on. Once he was in Germany, he was eventually arrested and imprisoned by the Gestapo in 1943 for his work in an underground seminary that opposed the Nazi regime. Pretty remarkable story. They kept telling him to stop. He didn't stop. And so he kept going. And so he was arrested. And guess what? His sentence was death. But like many, while he was in prison, he did not stay silent. He preached sermons in the barrack as they lay in their cots. He preached as their chains jostled, being transferred to other prisons. And he preached as they suffered intense hunger and persecution. You see, he was a witness for Jesus in one of the darkest places on earth. And then on April 9th, 1945, about five months, about five months before the war ended, He preached his last sermon. We're going to read it in full here this morning. He says, This is for me the end, the beginning of life. This is his last sermon. These are his last words as he's walking up to the noose. And it was after these words he was hanged. You see, what's amazing is that Dietrich Bonhoeffer can say these words because he knew, he believed, And he had hope. He knew and he believed and he had hope in the words of John 10.10. He understood this. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus says, though, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Dietrich Bonhoeffer knew that it was the enemy that was stealing, killing, and destroying him. But he also knew that because of his faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that this wasn't the end, that it was the next step. It was was the beginning of his life with Christ. And so listen, as Christians, we are going to feel the tension of John 10.10 our entire lives. And so I just want to bring this out a little bit because maybe today the, the, the thief is stealing some of your joy today. 
Maybe this week you've gone through something where the, the thief wants to just steal your love, your joy, peace, whatever it may be. Maybe he's killing your kindness or maybe he's killing a relationship. Maybe he's destroying something in your life. We feel that tension, don't we? It's very real. It's very prevalent in our lives. But as Christians, we can have hope because we also know that Jesus came to give us life and life abundantly, life now and life eternal. And so we have this tension our entire lives of the thief trying to bring us down, the thief trying to destroy us, and yet God giving us life and life to the full. Today in Revelation chapter 11, we're going to see the tension of John 10.10 play out in a very vivid way. But here's the deal. Here's what I want us to walk away with today. Here's what we're going to see through Revelation chapter 11. First, we're going to see what our role is in this dark world. You and me, okay? Not, not, not people in the Bible, you and me. God is speaking to us through his word today, okay? And so we're going to see what our role is in this dark world. Next, we, we're going to see what we should expect to happen when we live out this role. So if you truly follow your role and you, and you do your role, there's some expectations that are going to happen. And then lastly, we're going to see what the outcome will be for those who endure in their role. What's the outcome if you endure all the way to the end in your role in this dark world? All right? And so I'm not going to beat around the bush today. We're just going to jump right in, okay? So Revelation chapter 1, chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. Remember, this is John. He has this vision. So he keeps having these visions. This is another one that's going on. He says, Then I was given a measuring stick, and I was told, Go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the number of worshipers. But do not measure the outer courtyard, for it has been turned over to the nations. They will trample the holy city for 42 months. But I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will be clothed in burlap and will prophesy during those 1,260 days. There's so much we can unpack here in these first three verses, but I simply want to point out two things. First, in his sovereignty... God turns over the outer courtyard to the nations only for them to trample it. Do you see that? He says, don't count the outer courtyards. I've handed it over to the nations and they will trample it. But at the same time, in his sovereignty, God is also going to, he will raise up two witnesses who are going to prophesy right along while the trampling is happening. You see, these first three verses are the big picture about what's going to happen here in Revelation chapter 11. And we see two things. We see the nations trampling God's place and God's people. In other words, God's people are going to experience some very intense opposition. The thief is going to be stealing, killing, and destroying them. They're going to be facing that intense opposition, but at the same time, God's going to raise up two witnesses to give life, to speak the message of life, to show the message of life, to prophesy at the same time. And so we see two timelines running concurrent with each other. We see the nations trampling, and we see God raising witnesses up. We see the thief stealing, killing, and destroying 
but at the same time, God giving abundant life through his word and through his power. This is very reminiscent of John 10, 10, isn't it? The thief's coming to steal, kill, and destroy, but Jesus comes to give us life and life abundantly. You know what this teaches us, this, these first three verses? It teaches us that the world will trample God's people, but God's word and mission cannot be stopped. Okay, the world's going to trample God's people. It's happened for centuries now. God's people have been trampled on and trampled on, but yet here we are sitting here today because God's word and God's mission cannot be stopped. One of my favorite stories is in Acts chapter 5 where the disciples get arrested or the apostles get arrested and they're really seeking to figure out how to kill them. And all of a sudden, a really wise person, they didn't want to kill him because it was going to like spark an uproar and riots and stuff like that. And all of a sudden, this man named Gamaliel comes around and he says, listen, we've seen this before. We've seen other people do this before. And if, if it's of man, it's going to fail. So let him fail. But this, this Pharisee says this. But it's a, if this is of God, if these disciples are truly of God, you can't stop it. You can kill them all you want. You can trample them all you want, but you cannot stop God's word and God's mission. You just can't. Because he is God. He is in control. He is, I love the definitive nature of God's word. He will give over the outer courtyard to the nations, but he will also raise up two witnesses to give life and life abundantly to the people who need to hear it. The world will trample God's people, but God's word and his mission will continue. And we can have hope in that. We can rest in that. God is still working. He's still making a way. The world cannot stop him. The world cannot stop him. So we, we kind of saw the big picture of what's happening in Revelation chapter 11, and then the, the rest of the chapter is everything kind of unfolding of what we just read. And so let's continue on in verse 4. I missed that one. My bad. Revelation eleven four 4 through 6. These two prophets then are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of all the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire flashes from their mouths and consumes their enemies. This is how anyone who tries to harm them must die. They have power to shut the sky so that no rain will fall for as long as they prophesy. And they have the power to turn the rivers and oceans into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they wish. And so we saw the big picture in verses one through three. And then all of a sudden, John's vision turns into uh, who these witnesses are and what is their message. And so that's the two questions we're going to answer now. First, who are these witnesses? We're never specifically told who they are, and honestly, it's very debated on who they actually could be. So instead of trying to figure out who they are, we're going to look at how they're described. First, they're described as two olive trees and two lampstands that stand before the Lord. What's really amazing is that this right here, the, the idea of two olive trees and two lampstands, draws from Zechariah 4 where we see two olive trees that symbolize the anointed ones who serve God. And so we can safely assume that these two witnesses are simply servants 
of God. They are anointed servants of God. They've been called to do this for their God. But I love how uh, Mount says it. He says they're servants of God who are bearers of divine light. I love that phrase. I don't know why. Maybe you watch the opening ceremonies of the Olympics. Something special happens when you see that torch being passed on all the way up to the torch, right? And so there's something, this idea of bearing the divine light in this dark world. That's who these two people were. They're servants of God who bear the divine light. And honestly, how do we know this? Well, olive trees provide oil for lamps and lamps provide light, all right? And so that's something we can theorize about. And so God raises these two witnesses up to bear the divine light in the dark world, but he doesn't just raise them up and send them out and say, hey, figure it out for yourself. You can go here or there or whatever. What he does, though, he also gives them divine power. So not only does he give them the the divine light to bear, he gives them divine power to show the world as well. They, can, they have the power to do a few things. Maybe you caught it in there, and it honestly, it sounds pretty awesome to have, okay? So first, they can consume their enemies if they try to harm them before the message is done. Sometimes, my kids won't let me like, finish what I'm saying. They interrupt me a lot, and sometimes I want to consume them, okay? Like, just like stop them, like let me finish. Just kidding, Okay? But they can consume their enemies until if that enemy tries to stop them. God gives them that power. Next, they can shut the sky and prevent the rain, which we know is of utmost importance for all of the world. Rain is so important. Second, they can send every kind of plague as often as they wish. These witnesses bear the divine light, but they also display the divine power of God. So these witnesses get to then bear this divine light in this dark world, but they get to do it with the power and the divine power of God. They are witnesses who proclaim with power. They're witnesses who proclaim with power. And God gives them this power so that they can effectively communicate their message. Their message. So the question is, is what is their message? It's very simple because it's the same message throughout all of Scripture. It's the message of judgment and repentance. Of judgment and repentance. You read the Old Testament all the time. People walk away from God. What happens? Judgment and then repentance. You read the book of Judges. What happens? Israel walks away from God. He judges them, hence judges, right? And then that leads into their repentance, and it's just a cycle in life. You look at the New Testament, same thing. Jesus came, he said, repent and believe, basically. And then he also talks about this idea of judgment with it. And you see that throughout the Gospels. Their message is one of judgment and repentance. It's nothing new. It's what the world has always heard from the beginning of time. Judgment and repentance. And the reason we know that is because they're wearing burlap or sackcloth. And burlap and sackcloth means, symbolizes grief, humility, mourning, and repentance. You see, what's amazing here, hopefully you have a picture of these witnesses in your mind, okay? So I don't know, when I read the Revelation, all of a sudden these images start coming to mind of who they could be. So these two witnesses you're thinking about right now, what's amazing is, is this is not the first time that God has done this. 
This is not the first time that God has raised up witnesses and given them divine power. If we go to Matthew chapter 10, look what happens. Matthew 10, 5 through 8. So this is before Jesus went to the cross. This is right after Jesus calls his disciples to follow him in Matthew 4. And then we read this. Jesus sent out the 12 apostles with these instructions. Don't go to the Gentiles or the Samaritans, but only to the people of Israel, God's lost sheep. Go and announce to them that the kingdom of heaven is near. There's your message, okay? So there's their message. The kingdom of heaven is near. That's a message of judgment and repentance all wrapped up in that, okay? Second, he says, also though, heal the sick, raise the dead, cure those with leprosy, cast out demons, and give as freely as you have received. So in this one passage, we see their message. The kingdom of heaven is near. That's a message of judgment and repentance. And he says to the lost sheep of Israel, judgment and repentance. But not only do they have this divine message, they also have divine power. They can heal the sick, raise the dead, cure those with leprosy, and cast out demons. That's divine power, isn't it? Only God can do those things. And so here we see God raising up witnesses for himself, allowing them to be divine bearers of light, but also are given the divine power of God so they can proclaim their message. They are witnesses who proclaim with power. With power. Now some of us read this and we're like, man, that sounds kind of awesome. Like, I wish I could do those things. I, I would love to go and do those things. But, but there's kind of a catch here. Because a little further down in Matthew 10... We read this. Jesus, again, to the same people, he says, listen, look, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. So be shrewd as snakes and harmless as doves. But beware, for you will be handed over. Do you see the definitive nature of God again? Right? You will be handed over to the courts and be flogged with whips in the synagogue. You will stand trial before the governors and kings because you are my followers. But this will be your opportunity to tell the rulers and other unbelievers about me. And so these witnesses, these apostles are going to proclaim with power, but they're also going to face intense opposition in this endeavor. Much like the witnesses we saw in Revelation chapter 11, they're going to experience this opposition, but it's not in vain, is it? One thing I really want to point out here, right here, is that last sentence. You're going to go through this. God says, but you will be handed over. You're going to experience some opposition as you proclaim with power. But then he says, but this opposition will be your opportunity to tell the rulers and other unbelievers about me. You know what this tells us? This tells us that in our spiritual lives, opposition always leads to opportunity. Okay? You see, we live a, a, a very cush life here in America where when all of a sudden opposition comes, many of us, our, our, our boats are just rocked, aren't they? Our lives are just like shattered when all of a sudden it's not going every way we planned and we have no idea what to do about it. Or maybe something's happening in life and you're like, I don't know what to do with this. But just maybe God is bringing this opposition into your life as an opportunity to bear witness of Jesus with power. 
The problem is, is that we don't see it all the time, do we? The problem is, is we don't understand that our opposition in this life that we're going to experience leads to opportunity. And so my challenge for all of us today is let's have our eyes open to see the opportunity that comes through the opposition in this life. Not for our game, but for the message of Jesus Christ. And we'll talk about that in a little bit more. And so opposition always leads to opportunity. And so listen, the apostles stayed faithful to the end. And we, if you don't know that story, read the book of Acts. It's such a great story of the apostles just staying faithful to the end. And the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11, the question is, is do they stay faithful to the end? Well, let's read it. Revelation 11, 7 through 10. But when they complete their testimony, okay, so listen, they did it. They endured all the way to the end what God had required of them. They went through some opposition. They were able to do some pretty amazing things by the power of God. And so when they complete their testimony, so they're done. Their mission is done. The beast, the thief, comes up out of the bottomless pit. He will declare war against them, and he will conquer them, and he will kill them. And their bodies will lie in the main street of Jerusalem, the city that is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, the city where their Lord was crucified. And for three and a half days, all the peoples, tribes, languages, and nations will stare at their bodies. No one will be allowed to bury them. All the people who belong to this world will gloat over them and give presents to each other to celebrate the death of the two prophets who had tormented them. Who had tormented them. Okay, this is a lot of opposition here, isn't it? This is the thief stealing, killing, and destroying God's people. The beast comes up, he declares war, he kills them, and the world celebrates. We're told that their bodies are left in the street of Sodom and Egypt. Sodom represents wickedness. Egypt represents idolatry and suffering. And for three and a half days, their bodies lay in the street and the world gloats over them. For three and a half days, they sit there in shameful humiliation while the world exchanges presents over their body. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine people developing a, a uh, why can't I think of the word, holiday, a holiday for your death? Like, oh man, I'm so glad they're gone. Here's an iPad, right? They exchange presents and because the people who had tormented them, but yet they were prophesying and they were giving the message of life and yet they saw it as torment, which blows my mind. They were celebrating the death of these two. They were celebrating what was going on. You see, this doesn't shock me that this happens because Jesus actually said it was going to happen. Back to Matthew chapter 10, verse 22. He says to the apostles, he says, all the nations. Do you remember who God gives over the outer courtyards? You remember who he gives it over to in verse 1? The nations, okay? All the nations will hate you because you are my followers. All the nations will hate you because you are my followers. He is preparing them for this opposition. He's preparing them for the thief stealing, killing, destroying them. He's telling them that the world is not going to like who they are and the message they're speaking because of who it comes from. You see, in America, we don't experience the hate of Jesus like other countries do. 
people in your life may not like what you have to say or you say you're praying for them and they roll their eyes or, you know, little things like that. But we have the freedom to gather. We have the freedom to pray. We have the freedom to talk about Jesus. In other places in the world, the hate for Jesus is real. The hate for Jesus is intense. The hate for Jesus is so palpable that people literally get killed for their faith. The hate for Jesus is real around the world, and we have to see it here, but it's real here as well. It's very real here. But what happens, though, and we can't just focus on this. That's really the kind of the, the down part of this. But Jesus says, though, The world's going to hate you if you're my followers, but everyone who endures to the end will be saved. There's the promise. There's the hope. There's the hope. Following Jesus is not going to be this easy thing, but there's always hope at the end. Everyone who endures to the end will be saved. So the question is, is what happens to to the witnesses in Revelation 11? Let's finish it. Revelation 11, 11 through 12. But after three and a half days, look what happens. God breathed life into them. Isn't that amazing? These faithful witnesses who proclaimed with power the message of judgment and repentance, these faithful witnesses who were destroyed, killed by the beast, who were left in shameful humiliation, who literally were there for the world to gloat over and exchange presents over. The world thought it had won. The world thought that it was done, it was over. It was like, we won, this is good, we're gonna celebrate this. And yet, three and a half days later, God saves them, doesn't he? He breathes life into them and they stood up. Terror struck all who who were staring at them. Then a loud voice came from heaven and called to the two prophets, come up here. And they rose to heaven in a cloud as their enemies watched. Listen, those who endure to the end and follow Jesus all the way to the end will be saved, will be given life and life abundantly. The enemy can steal and kill and destroy us in our life, but listen, God has his save for eternity, doesn't he? The thief can steal and kill and destroy for a time, and yet God's going to have that control and going to give life and life eternal. We see it here. And we can't finish the story, but what's amazing next is, is all of a sudden everybody's struck with terror. God deals with those who reject them. Fear fell upon all the world who was watching. There was an earthquake. 7,000 of them died. And then all of a sudden those who, those who were left started to glorify God. Now look who has the power. God is the God of salvation, but he's also the God of vengeance. He's also the God of vengeance for those who don't believe in him. The thief has his safe for a day, but God has his safe for eternity. And that's something we can hope in today. Three things I want you to embrace in your life right now, this very day. Dietrich Bonhoeffer embraced these three things, and that led him all the way to his death. And before I go into these three things, listen, you probably won't have to give your life for Jesus, okay? I can't promise you that, but most likely, We live in a very free country, all right? 
So what I'm about to say looks different for all of us, okay? So, so it does, I'm not telling you you got to go on the street corners and start doing crazy things, okay? You have, to, you have to know what is God calling me to do right where I'm at because that's what matters. It's right where God has called you today. Your family, your friends, your work, whatever the case may be, okay? So it looks different for all of us, all right? Three things to embrace. First, you need to embrace the fact that God has called us to be witnesses, God has called us to be witnesses. And you know why I know that? Acts 1.8. This is before Jesus ascends into heaven, and he says this to, to the people standing around. He says, but you will receive power. There we have power, okay? You saw the apostles have it. The witnesses in Revelation have it. And now Jesus is saying, we're going to have it. And that power is the Holy Spirit who comes upon you, who dwells in us. And what are we going to do with this power? We're going to be What? witnesses telling people about me everywhere. God has called us to be witnesses. He's given us the power to do it. So we get to embrace the fact that we get to go and proclaim with power. Again, it's going to look different for you and me. It's gonna, my story is different than yours. Yours is different than the person sitting next to you. So how you can proclaim with power and be a witness, figure that out. Ask God to give you those opportunities. Ask God to see through the opposition and what's going on so that you can see how you can be a witness in your life to tell people about the sweetness of Jesus, which we learned about last week. Next, I want you to embrace the fact that it's not going to be easy. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I can only imagine what he was thinking as he sailed back. He probably knew it wasn't going to end well. He probably had no, like, he was like, you know what? If I go back to Germany, I'm probably not going to make it out. Because he knew what he was going to do there. He was going to be a witness. He was going to oppose the Nazi regime. He knew it wasn't going to be easy, and we have to know that as well. It's not going to be easy. The thief's going to steal, kill, and destroy. But at the same time, God's going to give you life and life abundantly. And look, look, look at this. Matthew 24, 9, then you will be arrested, persecuted, and killed. You will be hated all over the world because you are my followers. That's what Jesus says before he goes to the cross. It's going to happen. And so I don't know in your life who doesn't like your faith or who doesn't like what you have to say. It could be a family member, it could be a friend, it could be a child. Whatever the case may be, we have to understand it's not going to be easy, but the, the mission has to continue. We can't step back because it gets a little hard, right? And so we have to embrace the fact it's not going to be easy. But remember, there's always hope. We have to be witnesses. It's not going to be easy. But God gives life to those who endure to the end. God gives life to those who endure to the end. We saw it with the witnesses. We see it with other people in Scripture. And listen, the thief comes to steal kill, and destroy. And I love the word only there. Side note. How often do we turn to the thief to satisfy and sustain us? And yet, he is only here to steal, kill, and destroy in your life. And yet, we turn to him time and time again to do what only Jesus can do, which is give life and life abundantly. 
And so we have to understand that God gives life to those who endure to the end, to those who continue in their faith and live as faithful witnesses in this life. It's not going to be easy. You're going to fall. You're going to fail. You're going to stumble. But there's always hope at the end. And the hope is in Jesus Christ himself. He is the hope that we can hold on to. He is the one that we can believe in, that we can have hope in. The hope is life and life abundantly through Christ. And so before you leave here today, just think about how does God want to use you in your context? And then pray that God would give you that opportunity through the opposition and ask God to continue to give you that hope of life and life abundantly through it. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your grace. We thank you so much for your mercy. May we be people who embrace the fact that you've called us to be your witnesses in this dark world. God, help us to endure through the opposition that's going to come our way if we stay faithful to you. And God, continue to work that hope in our life, our hope in you, because you are our hope in life and in death. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. We're going to end with the benediction today. Grace and peace to you from the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come. Have a wonderful Sunday. Hopefully we'll see you next week.